0: Okay, we are in a series called Hope Has a Name. This is a week three of the series looking at the names of Jesus. It's prophesied in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And before we move on, uh, we've been looking at the same passage every week. Uh, I want to do something a little different. We want to look at it with some fresh eyes today. I want to read from the Message Bible paraphrase. Some of you like that, like I do. Um, It's not an exact word-for-word translation, but it is a really cool paraphrase by by the the, uh, late, great Eugene Peterson. And here's what it says in Isaiah through the Message Bible. Verse 6, for a child has been born for us. The gift of a son for us. He'll take over the running of the world. His names will be amazing counselor, strong God, eternal father, prince of wholeness. His ruling authority will grow and there'll be no limits to the wholeness that he brings. I love the way Eugene Peterson talks about this word peace or it's shalom in the original language here. He captures it with this concept of wholeness. Uh, shalom means wholeness or togetherness. Uh, it's, 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 when things are, it's when things are flowing, when they're operating th- actually the way that God created them to. That's shalom. When they're going the way God created them to be, right? His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Those words sound familiar to us. Shalom is, is a divine peace, uh, it's, it's things being reconciled. It's divided things being put back together, divided people being put back together. And it's interesting. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next Sunday when we go into the, the name of Jesus as Prince of Peace. But I I wanted to just touch on this, that this word Shalom, it's not just the absence of conflict. This is one that's, that's kind of hard for me because I don't like conflict. I don't know if you're into the Enneagram, but I'm the number that doesn't like conflict, right? Those personality tests. I run from conflict. I'd rather just like, oh, let's all just get along, right? Uh, no, 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 we don't need to fight. Uh, so, but this idea of shalom is actually not just the absence of conflict. It is, it's the presence of wholeness. It's the presence of, of harmony. And it's the difference between just uh, peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peace we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, anyway. But it does affect where we're diving into today. And so we've talked about in the past couple of weeks how Jesus is the wonder-provoking provo- counselor, the wonderful counselor. He provokes wonder in us. His wisdom runs against the grain of the world's wisdom. And how Jesus is mighty God. He's mighty God. And yet his most awesome divine power is revealed most shockingly on the cross, In this amazing act, his death on the cross, the humility and the lowliness that only an all powerful God would dare to pull off. And so now today we are going to look at the third name Isaiah tells us here, and that is the everlasting or eternal Father. So, what does that mean? What does that mean? What did Isaiah mean? And what does it mean for us? I first want to note an interesting fact here this is the only place in the entire Bible, where Jesus is referred to as father, the only place. It's kind of interesting. And for those of us who are used to seeing Jesus portrayed as the son of God, the son, you know, we, have, we it's a lot of son language in the New Testament there. This is kind of a little bit of a jarring thing. Because throughout the New Testament, He's the Son. In fact, it's stressed over and over that He walks in the role of the Son. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus and the Father are differentiated. They, they talk to each other. They're, they're, they're different personalities somehow. They interact. And, and Jesus even submits to Him. We see this in the New Testament. He submits to the will of the Father. And to us, He's almost, uh, uh, he's almost like a divine brother even one of the Christmas carols refers to Jesus as our brother, who made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God so that we can experience that relationship and that love, that intimacy that Jesus himself has with the Father. So it's this beautiful picture of Jesus as the son, him as our divine brother. And Isaiah says, a son has been given to us. That much is easy for us to, you know, wrap our minds around. That's cool. So he's the son. But then Isaiah identifies this Messiah as a father and an everlasting one at that. So now put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a second. When he wrote this prophecy, was Isaiah trying to explain to the Hebrew people the concept of the Trinity? probably not, right? Probably not. Uh, You know, to the Hebrew people, God, Yahweh, was one. End of story, full stop, period, right? The, The Trinitarian concept of God would have been nonsense to Isaiah and his peers. So it's kind of important for us to keep that in the back of our mind. Second of all, Remember, Isaiah is also probably assuming this Messiah that he's prophesying about the, the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he's prophesying of will be a human king, a human king who's come to rule a, a normal but great human government. And, and in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a king to be referred to as a father over his people. That was a, a pretty common thing. The ancient Near East, uh, you know, it was a very patriarchal culture. We've talked about that before. Uh, which means that men kind of were in charge of everything. Men empowered were empowered to to run things, and so the father had all the authority. Uh, fathers owned all the property. Fathers also had all the responsibility. You know, they were sort of the boss with the authority over everything. But just as a good Jewish father was was expected, he was the source of well being for the family, providing you know, for the food and shelter and protection, and he would even be expected to participate in the, the, the loving and caring and raising of children. Just like that, a good king was expected to love and protect and lead his nation in a similar way. And so the picture of the father was the source of well-being, a source of shalom. The father was looked upon this way. And a good father and a good kingly father was a source you could trust that was someone you could trust and because the hebrew concept of naming someone we've talked about before has more to do with the character of a person than anyone else so when isaiah says his name shall be called he is revealing something fundamental about this person the character of this messiah so here he's saying that he'll be the source of our well-being our, our shalom our being included in this family now, what about the eternal part? Because that sure sounds pretty divine. That sure sounds pretty godlike. Uh, here again, we can look at the ancient world, their practices, and we find that it was often said of a king back then that a king, and by extension, he and his, his lineage that came after him, would rule forever. That was always the wish. Uh, even Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, when he's talking to his first boss, King Nebuchadnezzar, we have a record of him saying, "'O king, may you live forever.'" Daniel says that to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not really saying, I think you're going to live forever. What he's expressing is, you know, a hope, and we like you around, we hope you never die, but, you know, if and when you do, we hope your lineage continues, your rule and your rules and the laws that you're doing, and that kind of thing. And so through them, you'll be sort of like immortal. You'll live forever. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar did die, as all people do, uh, Daniel's next boss, King Darius, Three chapters later, what does Daniel say? O king, may you live forever. It didn't work on the next guy, but maybe, you know, hers holding out hope. Maybe you will. So this helps explain why Isaiah may have been thinking when he says, uh, when he says this, Isaiah could never have imagined, of course, though. He could never have imagined, of course, that this Messiah would come 700 years later in the flesh, not to sit on an earthly throne, not yet not yet. And in fact, that this Messiah would come and he would live his whole life and die, and having never been married and had children, to continue some sort of natural lineage on a throne. He could never have imagined that. So what do, you, what do we make of this, this term, everlasting father, is applied to the son of God that we know today, Jesus Christ. First of all, we are assured here of something very special, that Jesus is not just a man born 2,000 years ago. He is the God who inhabits and possesses eternity. Amen? Isaiah 57, 15 says this, for thus says the high and lofted one who inhabits eternity. Oh, you see that phrase? Who inhabits eternity. Oh, that's huge. See, you and I, we don't inhabit eternity. We live in a finite place. We live in a finite time, you live right now. You do not exist yesterday and you don't exist tomorrow. You exist in the right now. You exist right here on this place in the chair you're sitting in or in the front of the screen you're watching. You're nowhere else, are you? You're here right now, we inhabit a specific place. This God inhabits eternity. He lives in the infinite. That's where this God lives, he exists there whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. This is the loftiest thing Isaiah can can imagine. And also, so he's not only there, you know, all the way up there, but also I exist with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. This God is in both places. This God is everywhere. He doesn't just exist in infinite time, but he exists in infinite space. He is an infinite Space and time, but he is also right here with us right now, right here in this moment, right here beside you. That's a beautiful thing. Over in Revelation, way at the end of all things, here, Revelation 21. Then he said to me, and John here is talking about Jesus. John's writing Revelation, he's talking about Jesus. All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. Do you hear the parental language there? They will be my sons. This is Jesus saying that we will be his sons and daughters. Hmm. Now, this this prophecy also reinforces to us, it speaks to me an important theological point that we don't really talk about much about here. It's sort of a little side note here, but it's important because it has a lot of implications. And that is that Jesus, hear my words, Jesus is not an inferior member of the Godhead. This is important for us to get. He's not an inferior member of the God. He's not like a lesser God in the Trinity than God the Father. Even though, We see this miracle, this wonder of him on the earth submitting his will to the Father while he walked the earth as a human being. So he did this. But we see very clearly, we get to the book of Revelation, when we get to the end of all things, we see Jesus, he's not some kind of second-in-command figure, like, what are we doing now, Dad? That's not Jesus in Revelation, right? We see him as fully king, fully God. In fact, he even reassures us over in Matthew's gospel. He tells us this All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. And that word in the Greek is interesting, it means all. (laughs) Go figure. All authority. All authority. Kind of, it kind of makes those arguments that you know. Sometimes we we all have heard, and we get to. And sometimes we might be wondering too. You know, well, should you pray to God, like God the Father, or should you pray like to God the Father in Jesus' name, or is it okay to pray to Jesus, or does that make like God the Father mad, or is it like can you can you talk to the Holy Spirit, or is he sort of he's off limits? Um, it all makes that kind of kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Right, because God is God, and the Trinity is not in competition with itself. Right, God's not like you know, the father's not like, oh, you pray to the son. That's not, that's, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not listening to that. No, no, no. They're not, they're not in a competition of hierarchy or arguing about who hears the prayers. John's gospel tells us this. John, of all the gospels, his is kind of the most philosophical, it's the most poetic. He really While The other gospels tell us sort of the play-by-play of what happens on the earth. John really gets into the nitty-gritty and sees what's going on behind the scenes, the origin story of Jesus. He says this, in the beginning was the Word. We find out this is Jesus. That Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. So, before there was stuff to be, Jesus was. It, ref- it makes me think of the- one of my favorite ways to refer to, to Jesus is the German existential philosopher, philosopher Paul uh, Tillich. He calls God the ground of being, the very ground of being. Before there is and is, God is. Jesus was, and what has come into being in Him was life, and that light, and that life was the light of all people. So Jesus Himself is the source. of, of our life, of our shalom, our being, and he will be for all of eternity. He's the face and the hands and the feet of the eternal father himself come in the flesh, and he'll always be the one who is providing life for us. And, and we get to participate in his life and his love forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Do you see how my, why, why I'm so in love with Jesus? I'm so in love with Jesus. Oh my goodness. And I got to tell you, all of this continually serves to humble me and humble so many of us quite a bit when we think, uh, when we think we've got all of our systematic theology of the Trinitarian structure all filled, figured out. Like, oh, it's like this, you know? It's the three-leaf clover. It's like an egg. It's like the three states of water. It's like when we got all that figured out, you know, like it's some cell we can look at under a microscope with, you know, a nucleus and a cell wall and a membrane and all. No, 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 no. The Trinity is this beautiful, fascinating, baffling, messy, awe-inspiring concept, and it is a concept that no human being would ever make up. (laughs) This is how I know it's true. No human would come up with this because it is such a contradiction to itself. We are created... By one God, not three gods. We don't worship three gods, do we? We have one God. We are told that throughout the scriptures. We worship one God, but it is a God who exists in three persons, in perfect unity, in perfect love, in perfect relationship. And then you kind of realize, well, this is kinda how God had to be. If a God who is God who if a God who is love has always existed. There has, there's like something to love, all right? And so there's this perfect relationship. And so Isaiah is, I think Isaiah here is revealing more than he even could have grasped. That his son, this son, this son would be in such communion and intimacy with the father that you could truly say about him, as Jesus says of himself, when you have seen me, you've seen the father. When you've seen me, you've seen him. One time when Jesus was trying to explain to the Pharisees, he's trying to explain to them who he really is. And they, they're, they're, they start bragging about their father, Abraham they're like, hey, we are the children. We are children of Abraham. We could trace our lineage. We have it on the scrolls. We could trace our lineage all the way back to Abraham. And so, because we're children of Abraham, that means we are children of God. We are the children of God. And Jesus shoots back kind of the most awesome, perfect mic drop of all times. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, you're children of Abraham. That's sweet. Before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus uses those words very intentionally. And they know it. The Pharisees know it. He uses the exact same phrase as God uses when he speaks to Moses. And he tells Moses his name is, I am the I am. And Jesus says, before, before Abraham, I am. Yeah, the Pharisees got so angry. They tried. They picked up stones to kill him right then. Those, those were fighting words to them. Friends, Jesus is more than just the cute little baby in the manger sitting on my fireplace. He's more than just the man who walked the skin of this earth for 33 years. He's more than just a really great prophet of God. He's more than just a really clever rabbi who knows how to drop the right scripture here and there. He's more than just the founder of a new religion. He did not die and rise again so that we could have a new religion. He is the everlasting source and provider of our shalom. Perhaps most beautiful of all to realize is that as the writers of Hebrews and Colossians remind us, he is the perfect representation of God himself. See, whatever we thought of God, however scary we thought God might have been, however mean or petty or aloof or demanding, might have been our image of God, and I'm not just talking about you and me, I'm talking about the collective image of God that human beings have had for 100,000 years, these images of God. Whatever misconception you held of God, and whatever painful image you've held of God, because maybe, maybe your own father didn't love you well. Maybe you've experienced abuse, and neglect, or, 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 or maybe he was just absent, or demanding, or drunk, or maybe he was just completely ill-equipped to parent you the way you needed to be fathered. Jesus arrives to right all the wrongs. He arrives to reconceive all of our misconceptions, to heal the hurts, And he arrives to say, I am the God who heals you. I am God. I am your God. I am the source of shalom. I am your creator. I am the one who loves you unconditionally. This is who I am. This is who I've always been. This is who I will always be. However grossly, you have to understand, however grossly our ancestors might have, misrepresented the everlasting father over the millennia. Whatever horrors they attributed to him or pagan attributes they assumed of him, no one has ever truly seen into the face of God until the moment he was born into the flesh. Until that moment he was laying there crying in a crib made of stone and straw that was the first time we got to see the face of God. That was when God started revealing himself fully, and he would continue to do so over Jesus' entire life in his ministry, showing us who God really is. Reconceiving all the misconceptions, fixing our picture. Who is God? He's not Zeus, right? He's not Baal, He's he's not the flying spaghetti monster, and he is he's definitely not the angry drunk dad who comes home looking for somebody to smack around when he's in a bad mood. This God is love Himself. This Jesus is love itself, and He has come with healing in His wings. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So some of us grow up with these images of God. Some of us still have these images of God, and people who sometimes who, who aren't even religious, but they still have an image of God out there, and they're like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared of that God. I'm scared of that God. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know the way he would react to me. This is the God. You want to know the way, what, what God is really like? He's the God who hung on that cross. He's the God who, when someone was caught in the act of sin... And people were ready to kill her. He's the God who sat down beside her and said, Okay, whoever is perfect here can cast the first stone, knowing he was the only perfect one in the square. This is the God who arrives at the wedding and they've run out of wine and he makes some more out of water. This is the God who who who, who, who's, who sees who's sitting, who's hanging on the cross. He's suffering unimaginable torments. He's saving the sins of the world and his mind immediately goes to a friend of his to make sure he's going to take care of his mom. That's the God you don't have to be scared of. That's who God is. It's Jesus. This God is the one who walks into the room full of his friends and he washes their feet. Washes their feet. This is the God who sits on a beach and cooks fish for his friends, who just betrayed him and abandoned him and ghosted him. And he's making them some fish on a campfire because he loves them. Oh, can you imagine how good that fish tasted? <laughs> Sorry, my, my brain always goes to the food, right? Oh man, I mean, fish is good. Fresh fish is amazing. Campfire fish cooked by a Messiah. It's gotta be good stuff. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Paul says this over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in Jesus, all the fullness, the fullness of God, that's an interesting Greek word. It means fullness. (laughs) It's this word pleroma. It means the fullness, it means complete, was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, which is this Greek word panta, which means all things. Well done, translators. All things. And not just every type of thing. This word, it means every individual thing in all the categories. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace, it's this word that that. Comes, it means like shalom. It's peacemaking. He <laughs> makes peace through the blood of the cross. So here's the shalom. Here's what the shalom God is doing by means of the cross event. This, uh, you can think of the cross sacrifice as sort of this explosion of God's undiluted, pure, sacrificial love. That's what's happening there. It's now reverberating through the cosmos. And Paul's saying that by means of the blood shed on Calvary at this explosive event, God is now at work bringing shalom to everything in creation, everything in creation, everything above the earth, on the earth, under the earth. The whole creation is being brought with this shalom. It's a cosmic event. Now, I don't know what uh, shalom looks like in terms of the whole cosmos. Someone asked, well, what is, what would, you know, what does shalom look like on a distant planet in the galaxy of Andromeda? I don't know. I don't have any idea, Right. Actually, I have some ideas, but I'll, I'll, some things you just keep to yourself. Um, but I do know what it looks like here on earth. And what it looks like here on earth, for God to be spreading shalom by means of the sacrifice of the cross, what it looks like is to be the church. What God spreading his shalom across this planet looks like is to be, for us to be the church. You and me, the followers of Christ... Who, who, us aspiring to, to imitate the love of that cross toward all people at all times. This means that we don't just find our shalom in Jesus. We're called to participate in the shalom, spreading the shalom and, and, and representing the kingdom of God to other people. We participate. That sums up our call right there. Uh, it's, it's our call in creation as kingdom people And so we're called to live in love as Christ loved and as he gave his life for us. We're called to live with that others-oriented focus, sacrificing for the shalom of others. And in doing so, when we do that, we are participating in what God is doing around this world. It's It's a supreme honor, friends, to get to participate in what God's work is. We get to participate in his plan, redeeming the world. We are participating in something that is absolutely eternal. And now what that looks like in practical terms, actually lived out, is different depending on who, what the need is. So for someone who is, who is really aware that they are far from God and they feel estranged from God and need, they need to be reconciled, so shalom for them will look like introducing them to Jesus. You being a part of that, introducing them to Jesus. But that's not the whole gospel by any means, okay? A lot of people think the the gospel just begins and ends right there with us getting people saved and their ticket punched. And, and And then we leave everything else for someone else to fix. The gospel is about the whole person. Shalom is by definition about the whole person. And so, if somebody's hungry, shalom looks like providing food for them. Pretty simple. If someone's homeless, it looks like providing shelter for them. If they're friendless, it looks like being a friend for them, a friend to them. If they're guilty of something, shalom looks like declaring their forgiveness. If they're one of the invisible people in the world, shalom looks like inviting them to the party and making them the superstar. It can look like a lot of different things. If they're an orphan, Shalom looks like fostering and adopting (laughs) children and making them your own. To at-risk youth, Shalom might be mentoring a kid after school. For single moms, it might be helping them out with daycare. However it looks, however shalom looks, however it looks to be, it's, it's manifesting God's will against everything that's not God's will, right? Pretty simple. It's manifesting God's will against everything that's not God's will. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. It's manifesting God's will. This prayer that Jesus taught us to pray here is not just a prayer for God to do stuff while we watch. You understand? I, I, I'm, I'm still under, coming to understand this. This is not just a petitionary prayer for God to do something while we watch. God, may your kingdom come. Make stuff happen. This is a declaration that we are willing and ready to participate in bringing the kingdom into the hearts of people. That's what this is. It's our declaration. I'm a part of this. When we do that, we're partnering with God. You understand that's our role. It is not just to be God's pets. Here for whatever span of time we happen to be living on the skin of this earth we have a calling and an honor to participate in this shalom to bring about his will his kingdom to bring a bit of heaven on earth to bring this about we're not just reading the scriptures we're living them out we're bible people we are living out these scriptures we're living in the narrative of this eternal story that god is writing and and see this is the only story that goes on forever It's the only one that goes on forever because uh, this is the only story that can claim to be eternal. Every other story will have an ending. Every other kingdom, every empire, every emperor, every country, every religion has an expiration date. We're told that very plainly in the scriptures. It all has an expiration date. This is the only story. That is eternal. And this is what the Christmas story is all about. That God was willing, God was willing as infinite love to to existing outside of infinite time. This God was willing to become finite. To become this tiny baby on this one planet, in this one galaxy, at this one moment, occupying this one space this particular finite space. It's known in theological circles as the scandal of particularity because it is a scandal. It is. It's, it's shocking. It's a contradiction. And then for this God to go further and enter into solidarity with our sin on the cross, that is the bomb that's reverberating throughout the world right now. And now God in his love, he's spreading that He's spreading that shalom by means of his blood shed on the cross, bringing peace throughout the cosmos, peace here on the earth, by means of people who will align with him. That's you and me. And we have a we have a Father, a Savior, who is our source, and He wants to be our source forever and ever and ever. And the question is: the question is, will we align ourselves with it? Will we surrender to it? Will we surrender? Um You know, even in normal times, if this were just a normal year, like 2019, <laughs> when it comes to these holidays, the stuff that we navigate around the holidays is, uh, is usually the relational tensions that all of us have, people that we don't understand, um, friends or family that we can't control, we can't manage them. what? What if this year, more than ever, when, when this feels hyped to 11, this, this problem, what if we begin by rooting our identity in, in the everlasting father? How do you navigate this season with people you can't understand, that you can't control? Root your identity in the everlasting father. What if we remember that what Jesus said is that any who follow him are adopted as sons and daughters, We're all adopted sons and daughters. And when we realize that we are adopted sons and daughters of the king, it changes everything, it really does. It changes the way we view ourselves, it changes the way we we view others, it changes the way we relate to each other. I think about my kids. I have three beautiful kids, I love them all. I love my kids so much. I look at them and I'm in awe, sometimes that I'm their dad, that I have that honor, that privilege of getting to love them and help care for them. You know, I want to help provide for them. I want, to, I want to take care of them in every way possible. And the reality is, of course, that I am a deeply imperfect father with imperfect love. And I think about my dad, his love and his care for me when I was growing up. I had a great dad, I was blessed. I had a great dad, and I know as great as he was, he was imperfect, just as I am imperfect. But whether you had a great dad or a good or a bad dad or whatever kind of dad you had, we all have a perfect father in heaven. You have a perfect father in heaven. And Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, God in the flesh, he cares for us as a dad for his children. And he will forever and ever care for us. He will be our everlasting father. He will be that, that, that one who longs to take care of us. He longs to provide for you. He longs to help you and love you and serve you, uh, serve, serve, help to, to serve you in the things that you need, to help you grow in all the things that you can be. This is the picture of Jesus, the same Jesus who, who fed the 5,000 is the same Jesus who washed the feet of the disciples. He's the same Jesus who loves you. And he wants to be your everlasting father, a perfect father. So this Christmas, I want to help you remind yourself of your identity in Christ not, not your identity and who your family is, not your identity and, and what your job title is or your resume or what your salary is or what other people expect from you. That doesn't define you. Your identity is in Christ. Let his light guide you forward then from that into all the other relationships in your life. When you start from that, it affects other people and it affects the way you relate to other people. And, and so as you're navigating people and you're navigating some of those relationships, are, so you got relationships in your life that are easy and fun and they're a, just a relief to be around. You have others that are sort of, uh, it's like sandpaper you know, to, for you to be around. As you navigate those relationships, understand that uh, this, this Christmas, find opportunities to love people when they least expect it when they least deserve it find opportunities to love them in a real practical way right because we're not just talking about platitudes here we're not just talking about peace on earth you know goodwill toward men this is a real practical way you and I can bring shalom we are active co-participants in the kingdom and this this christmas is our opportunity to do that This season is a great opportunity. There is an expression that I love. You've probably heard it. It says, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. In other words, don't have your head just so far in the clouds waiting for eternity to begin that we're actually not doing anything right now to bring the kingdom of heaven into the lives of desperate people all around us. Be spreaders of shalom. Shalom spreaders of shalom, peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. Don't just run from the fight, but be, be active ministers of reconciliation between people. Be the one in the middle that brings them together. Don't just run from injustice because it might ruffle people's feathers be active participants in bringing shalom, bringing peace, bringing reconciliation between people. And the world needs this more now more than ever. We know that, and we all are living in the same country. The world needs us active in this ministry of reconciliation more than ever, more than ever, bringing love to the unloved. That is when you look most like the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ Himself. Will you bow your heads with me and pray? Hallelujah. Father, Lord God Almighty, we thank you for being our God. We thank you for adopting us as your children. We worship you as our Father, our Source, our Provider. God, we know that you exist. It's hard for us to understand it or explain, but we know you exist in perfect oneness and harmony and relationship. The three in one, even as it is something that is not actually fathomable for us. But we know that above all else, Lord God, you are love. You call yourself love, you're the very ground of being. We thank you for your fatherly love for us, your fatherly care for us. Lord, I pray especially for those among us who who may have a very broken history when it comes to a father figure. Lord, those who may find it even difficult, a a really hard leap to make to see you as a loving father. I thank you for your patience and your healing, your shalom in their life. Where you touch, Lord God, let there be nothing missing, nothing broken. May we become sons and daughters who who receive that love, we receive that shalom more perfectly, Lord God, so that we're able to re-gift that divine shalom onto other people around us, Lord God. Keep us safely in your arms this week, Father. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. If there's anything that we can pray for you about today, be sure and let us know. Don't suffer in silence. Don't just say, I'm going to get through it. I don't need to let anybody know, or maybe it's embarrassing. No, no, there's no shame in having a need. Amen. That is what community is all about. So let us know. Uh, There's a lot of different ways you can send in your prayer request. Online through our church app or through the uh, the website. Uh, if you want someone to pray with you face-to-face right now, if you're here today, Pastor Albert's going to be right here down front. He's going to be front and center. And uh, we just ask you to come forward and let him pray with you in faith because it's not the same when we pray. We believe that. Amen. Amen. Those of you who are giving your tithes and your offerings today, thank you so much for honoring the Lord that way. Uh, and uh, we praise you. Uh, we thank you. <laughs> I'll pray. I thank you for uh, helping us to uh, do everything that God has called us to do as a ministry, as a body, this this body, not only here in our church, we're taking care of our own, those who are suffering and who need help, um, but in our community and around the world, of course, So we thank you so much. Amen. And I pray that we see all of you here Thursday night at 6 p.m. for our Christmas Eve service. Amen. As you stand, let me bless you, my friends. May God the Father bless you and keep you May the Son, Christ the King, teach you in all of his ways. May the Holy Spirit strengthen your hearts in holiness as you prepare yourself this week for the coming of the Lord. Grace and peace, my friends.